I think every entrepreneur faces rejection all the time. If this is something that they can leverage tools to increase their efficiency, they must do so. The entrepreneur that says, I will do it myself just because, you know, I'm going to show the world one more power to you. Just don't waste so much time doing it. I would not invest in them. And you know why? The entrepreneur that says, look, this is taking me unnecessary time. I'm going to use the tools that help me be more efficient. I think that's very wise. You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. A podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Swati Chaturvedi. She is the co-founder and CEO of PropelX. PropelX is an investment marketplace that gives investors the power to discover and fund visionary science and technology startups. Swati, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Thank you, Gopi. It's a pleasure to be here. In this episode, Swati and I talk about her journey into venture capital, how she started PropelX, and what she looks for in entrepreneurs when she makes investments. She is a rare person whose business touches the world of venture capital, entrepreneurship, and investment banking. She gives perspectives based on all three of those experiences and gives specific examples of situations that help entrepreneurs prepare before they go to investors. She also talks about common misunderstandings and uh, controversies that are around the venture capital and investment banking sectors. She gives Solutions to entrepreneurs to make their life efficient. Swati, tell us about yourself, starting with what is your company about? I am the CEO and co-founder of PropelX. As you said, PropelX is an investment marketplace where we connect accredited investors with deep technology startups of various kinds. And the sectors that we focus on include life sciences, manufacturing, energy and green technologies, aerospace and transportation, computing and associated hardware and software areas, industrial technologies, ag tech. Those are our main sectors of focus. So PropelX has two main businesses. One is this investment marketplace, which is available online, accessible by entrepreneurs online, by investors online, worldwide, anywhere. We also have a venture capital business. So we have a very small fund that invests in companies that appear on the PropelX platform. And that is called Newton Fund. I'm a partner there as well. Why did you start PropelX? What was the thought process then? Let me share a little bit about my background. I think that will provide the context to why I did what I did. So I grew up in India and I was always interested in science and technology and the impact that it has on the world. I came to the US for my graduate studies. I went to Berkeley, MIT, became a management consultant, a little bit of a sellout, ended up doing quite a bit in corporate finance. So got my MBA. So that's a pretty standard path that people follow. But after my MBA, I started in investing. Early on, I took an internship at Siemens Venture Capital, invested in growth equity uh, there, and then I joined a private equity firm here in San Francisco. At the private equity firm, we were doing very late stage kind of carve outs, and my heart wasn't in it. 
I think Silicon Valley, San Francisco, they have this startup entrepreneurial vibe. And I wanted to be an angel investor. I wanted to participate in this whole startup ecosystem. So thinking that I wanted to be an angel, I started visiting various angel groups to see if I could join one of them. This was way back, 2012, 2013. At that time, the buzzwords were so low, mo, so social, local, mobile. That's simply not my thing. I just did not find it compelling. I really wanted to participate in companies that are leveraging science and technology to change the world, to have an impact. So I started along with Lee Sheng, my co-founder, the MIT Angels Group. Initially, we started it in Northern California. Now we have chapters all over the country. And that really was eye-opening. One of the things that we did differently from other angel groups is we did open it up to all accredited investors and we didn't have a minimum investment. We didn't have fees. It was really a university-based angel group. It was a lot of fun. We started sourcing deals. We learned a few things. So because given our passions in life, we focused that group on what we defined at that time deep technology startups. So we said deep tech companies are those that are founded on meaningful engineering or breakthrough science and are having an impact on the world. Now today, deep tech, by the way, is a global thing, which is great. We focused our group on this. This was way back. I think we had our first discussions in 2013. We had our first MIT Angels meeting in 2014. So it was really at the start of this whole deep tech phase in the world. What we discovered is two things. One, there were lots and lots of investors who are interested in these kinds of companies. These kinds of companies tend to be a little bit complex, right? They're based on deep science, deep research, and so on. But we had such a big base of MIT alumni that was interested. The first meeting we had, I will not forget it. We were hosted by a local law firm. We had 100 plus people show up. And then more, and then some, and then some. We had to organize overflow rooms with uh, streaming uh, video into those rooms. So there was interest. But at the same time, it was shocking to me that some of these companies found it hard to raise financing. One of the earliest companies was SQZ Biotech that has just gone public. So these companies deliver great returns. It's just that they are what I call sleeper companies. So they are sleeper hits, which is to say, It's not apparent what they will become until they become it. You know, it's not apparent there will be a hit until they are a hit. So on the one hand, there's investors that are interested. But on the other hand, these startups find it hard to raise financing. We felt there was a much bigger opportunity for us to have an impact on the deep tech ecosystem. So we started PropelX. The intention was to connect deep tech startups to investors that could finance them around the world. That was how it was launched out of the MIT Angels. So you mentioned that Propelex is a marketplace and you also have a venture fund. And how is this structure different from a typical venture capital firm? It's quite different. So first and foremost, Propelex as a marketplace is backed by investors. So we have angels and VCs who've invested in our own operations. In my mind, they pay for our time and the activities we do should accrue benefit to them. Now, a usual venture capital firm is structured, you know, you'll have various LLCs all interconnected and there'll be a management company and so on. So there's a fund which will be an LP and so on. When we raised this fund, we had the opportunity to invest in these companies. That's why we raised a fund. To be very clear, we did not have a prolonged process. 
We raised it from friends and family. Obviously, the fund itself is structured as a limited partnership. But the management company structure is different from other venture funds. What has happened in in reality, practically speaking, is we have this deal flow coming in all the time and with excellent co-investors. And we feel that, practically speaking, we've not invested outside of Propellix. Well, this is a fascinating story. As a student of science, I can relate to the need for more science-based, technology-based startups and the impact that they will have would be enormous. It's great to see that you've already seen the effect of that over the years. And I see that the structure, the legal structure and the operations of how PropelX and your venture fund runs is different from a typical VC firm, but you are in the same business of meeting entrepreneurs at an early stage, investing in them and believing in their vision before other people do. Like you said, there are sleeper stages when you invest before they become blockbuster in the future. Let's start with what kind of startups do you invest in? Roughly how many of them do you invest? How often? And what stages do you want to meet them? Propellex Inc. has showcased maybe 250 plus startups. 85 plus deals have been completed through that platform. And the average ticket size per deal is around 400K right now. So we really do invest in the earlier stages. When Propellex started, our investors were investing in seed stages. Now, Series A's, Series B's, and so on also are there. Series A, I would say, is our sweet spot right now. But as investment banks go, as marketplaces go, when you have more liquidity, the balance starts to shift towards larger deals. It just does, because you have more people willing to invest, more liquidity available. With Newton Fund, it is different. Newton Fund, our mandate, again, it was to invest in seed stage companies, in deep technology startups, in these sectors, which I mentioned. So we do invest early on. We write small checks. So our contribution to a deal would be 50K, 100K at a time. Uh, We have now invested in about 25 deals. And our portfolio is performing quite well, which we're very, very happy about. What do you look for in entrepreneurs when you meet them? What is the process and what are the kind of things that really get you excited? Shockingly, we don't meet most of our entrepreneurs. (laughs) So believe it or not, we were probably one of the earliest. I know now after COVID, it's commonplace. People don't meet the entrepreneurs before they invest. Yeah, Before COVID, it was not commonplace. But For us, it has been that way right from the beginning. We don't meet our entrepreneurs. We will meet them on Zoom, if that. We have them present to our entire team. Venture capital firms have a very different way of looking at things than angel investors. Simply, it it just is a very different risk profile. How is it different? Let me give you an example, okay? So there was an opportunity to invest in a Series B company that gives us a maybe 2x return in one year, very close to exit, Series B. For an angel investor, that's an amazing opportunity. You're going to double your money in a year, more or less, right? I mean, there's nothing guaranteed, of course. But for the fund, it wasn't good enough, right? Because we have to we have to return the entire fund. For the angel investor, they're looking at these opportunities one at a time, and they will get a return from this one opportunity. For us, we don't get a return until the entire portfolio is returned. Besides which, we also felt that the time horizon was not right. We wanted to be able to invest in it for longer, simply put. 
I think venture capital firms look at things very differently from an angel investor. So things that are a fit for Newton Fund are off, sometimes may not be a fit for angels and vice versa. In fact, the vice versa is most often true. Things that are a fit for angels are most often not a fit for the fund itself. Because we want to look for that greater return, angels are getting 100% return in a year. It's very good. Very good. And the reason for us is, look, we're going to invest 100K. It's not as though we're investing $2 million and we're doubling that. No. We will still have the portfolio strategy at the fund level. We'll invest 100K and we get 200K return. Well, it's not returning the fund and it's not moving the needle towards returning the fund, so to speak, right? So it's very different. Therefore, the things that Newton Fund invests in are different from what people invest in on the platform. But there's a lot of overlap. I'm going to talk or share some examples of what Newton Fund has invested in. We just invested in a company called Avails Medical. And what they're doing is they're helping determine in a much more rapid way which patients are correct for which antibiotics. Let's just put it like that. Very simply put, antibiotic resistance is a big problem right now. And they're helping determine which patients should get what antibiotics. And they're doing it very quickly. Usually that process is a three to four day process in which time if the patient gets sepsis, it's a serious problem. Sepsis is the number one killer today in the US. So that was out of that technology was out of Stanford. The round was led by Omron Ventures. Omron is one of the world's largest medical device companies. It's a Japanese company, so listed on the Japanese stock exchange. It was a Series B, and we put in a small amount. But of course, along with Propelex, we make a large sum. So that was a recent investment. Vivid Vision is something we've invested in, which uses video games to help cure eye problems in children, strabismus and such. Brelion is another thing that we've invested in. Brelion is a, is a next-generation ultra-reality display technology. So imagine if you could have virtual reality, 3D, immersive, with no headset, right? So that is what Brilliant is bringing. Again, MIT team, they have the co-investors include E14 Fund. So E14, just so you know, is a building in MIT, uh, the MIT Media Lab, actually. So E14 Fund is kind of a take on the Media Lab. So it's all MIT-related. Franklin Templeton Investments has also invested in Brilliant. Those are two examples. Mesentech is another one. It's a drug company that's uh, created a way to reverse osteoporosis. We hope right now that's not the market they're going after, but the long-term vision is for that, to reverse bone loss. So they're going after some orphan diseases right now, and then long-term osteoporosis is a very big market. So this is a Canadian firm, and the co-founder, Bob Young, he's the guy who was leading the chemistry behind Advair, Vioxx, like these blockbuster drugs. So Cure Duchenne, so Duchenne is, a, is an orphan disease. Cure Duchenne is a foundation. So Cure Duchenne Foundation has also invested in this. So what do you look for? What questions do you ask uh, the entrepreneurs and what's your process? There's two things we really look for. The technology has to be sound, which means what? There has to be some fundamental research behind it. There must be some published papers. You must have you know, scientists who are leading your technology or who are your CTOs and so on. So that is kind of important for us. We have in-depth conversations with them on the technology itself. We also tap experts 
to weigh in on the technology. For experts, we have three ways to to tap expertise. One is, of course, in-house expertise. I mean, we have we know a little bit about the various technologies, so that's good as a starter, kind of a screening point. The second is we have our own expert network. So there's 1,200 plus experts in our network. People can sign up on Propelex. It's the expert network for Propelex. We often tap that. And then the third is we have an industry council across industry sectors. So we have deep relationships with industry. Typically, they're corporate venture or innovation groups. And we tap those as well quite a lot. And in fact, there have been instances when we actually tapped the corporate venture group and lo and behold, they gave a term sheet to one of our companies. So that was an interesting experience. But yes, it's important to get people who are close to the science and close to the technology to understand it, translate it, and persuade us. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is, tell me about your customer attraction, right? I mean, most companies have $0 in revenue, you know, and if you're a life sciences company, you're far from revenue. But nobody stops you from having conversations. And that is very important for us. Tell us what conversations you've had with industry. What has been the feedback from the industry? So whether you're talking to industry leaders, whether it's large corporates or startups or other, you know, various research groups, we need to understand what is the traction that you've had. For us, this is this defines traction. It's not the number of users. Obviously, these companies are early. It's not the revenues you have. But it's really your industry conversations. Are you known in the industry for what you're doing? Have you reached out to people? Have you sought feedback? Have you changed gears based on the feedback? We will reach out to those people because we do have industry connections as well. So it's very important to us to understand what your industry connections are. In our industry council, we are like, uh, who are the likely acquirers for this? Oh, this, this, and this. All right, let's, let's reach out to these three people and get their feedback right on this. So it's important that you should also have been reaching out to various people. People should know about you, should understand your technology and so on. So those are the two important things for us. You have a very methodical approach and you have a process and you look at both the technology side of things and also the the customer attraction that forms the full business for any typical deep tech company. Your journey as an entrepreneur with Propelex had many ups and downs. Has that informed you to become a better investor? Yes. (laughs) How does that experience help you relate to the entrepreneurs? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I know that all of these, what the entrepreneur says, are stories, 90% of which will not play out as they think it will. Because it just is that way. If they've demonstrated the willingness to stay. Many of the companies that come to us have been around for a while. In the venture capital world, things have a shelf life. But for us, we overlook shelf life. I don't care if you've been around for 14 years, 20 years, so long as what you're doing is relevant today. And struggle is a mark of grit. And that's okay. We are a little bit different I just hear things that go on in the venture capital world, you know, how someone raised like $100 million and so on and so forth, and typically very young founders. So our founders are all ages, starting from very young to post-retirement, second gigs, many of them, many, many of them. So it really spans all age groups. And I love that. I really love that because I get to learn from them, each of them. And some of our founders are so experienced. And every time I talk to them, I just think it's such a privilege to sit in front of you. It is my honor. 
you know, because they've already done it. They know it all. <laughs> and we have the, the privilege to sit in front of them and learn from them. So I think those are a few things that our entrepreneurial experiences have taught us. The other thing that one entrepreneurial, one thing that I have learned is VCs never ask for the right things. There's always things going on. You cannot possibly count for all the things that are going on under the hood, which these startup knows. I mean, they ask for some data. What you're going to get is the successful data. It's a lot of failed experiments, right? So ask for the failed experiments. Then you'll see how much work they have actually done to come to this. People don't check the balance sheet, believe it or not. I know what's on my balance sheet, right? I think venture capital firms tend to look at the p and I mean, also because we are Hubble or Propelex side of things, marketplaces, a broker dealer has an obligation to conduct diligence. And we find things on the balance sheet, which would otherwise have been overlooked by the ordinary VC. So I feel our way of doing things is very different because we've been, we are entrepreneurs ourselves. I think I just have great respect for what it takes, the sleepless nights and hard work and blood and sweat and yeah. That's the journey of the entrepreneur. The highs are high highs and lows are low lows. And having lived through it yourself, you can relate to entrepreneurs better than an average banker or a, a venture capital investor. Yes, but believe me, it's one thing to have high highs and low lows, but it's really strange if they happen within an hour of each other. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And that does happen. <laughs> Fundraising is... Uh, considered a responsibility of the CEO and the startups are not expected to engage bankers uh, when they raise money for their company. The VCs expect that they would directly invest in the company and the investment term sheet given says that there is no banker fees paid to get the transaction done. So in that world, you stand out very differently. What is your philosophy on this and how are you able to navigate the status quo? I never heard a worse argument, honestly. Why do VCs say don't hire a banker? So I'll tell you, Silicon Valley is full of finders. Every startup works with a finder. It's informal. I'll give you 2% of whatever. I'll figure out a way to do it. You're going to be called a consultant. I'm going to give you some amount of equity. Just help me fundraise. That's what is a finder. Finder is an illegal activity. If it is a percentage of the funding raised. And often, oftentimes it is. And the reason why startups work with help is because they need the help. I never heard a worse argument. Do not use the efficiency that is out there for you because I want to see you be macho somehow. Here's what I say. Why don't you just resort to direct mailers? Why use uh, you know digital marketing? Why use active campaigns? Why use marketo? Why use Salesforce? You should just go and sell door to door. People don't do that. Why do they use Salesforce? It's for efficiency. Wherever there is a tool for efficiency, entrepreneurs are encouraged to use it. Bankers are a tool for efficiency. You pay for that tool and you use it. And I'll tell you why it is so important. I have learned this over and over again, that time is money in a startup. Every day that I don't raise financing, I'm paying to carry my entire team, but not getting anything done by them. You know why? Because I can't hire the right people to work with my team. But in the meanwhile, I'm carrying this team. So it is very important to close around very quickly. Anything that you can do to gain that efficiency, you should, you must. 
And that is what platforms like PropelX offer. Or an investment banker. You know, I have newfound respect for investment bankers where maybe I was of the same opinion as you were until I realized, hey, what the hell, I'm an investment banker myself. <laughs> so, And I have respect for that now because I feel they are a tool for efficiency. If you go to a platform, you are able to raise financing in a few weeks with very few hassles and no strings attached. Why shouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? So this is a stale argument. It's very old-fashioned. It's passe. Those days are gone when you should be doing this all, all yourself to show me that you have the salesman skill. No, I don't think so. Why have a CFO then? Just do it yourself. Why have anyone else? You know, Why have a team? The purpose of that is to enhance your efficiency, to put your time to the highest and best use. So, sorry, this is a subject I'm passionate about now. I'm glad we got into this. This is fun. <laughs> So in the transaction world, there is a role that is well-respected at the later stages. When later stage companies raise money, 50 million, 100 million dollar rounds, it's perfectly okay to engage broker-dealer to support the transaction. But at earlier stages, what you're saying is that it happens, but behind the scenes. Why don't we bring it up front and help the entrepreneurs because time is money? Yes, precisely that. It happens all the time. We must understand why it happens. It happens because there is a need. The entrepreneur needs that help. Why? Because time is money. And we must provide a way for them to legitimately and properly do this activity, to use the tools that are existing at their disposal. If anything, earlier stage entrepreneurs need more help because yes. they had they don't have a lot of experience fundraising. So Yes, and they don't have a long list. So, you know, I recently put something out on, on LinkedIn that fundraising is like sales. It's very much like sales in that you need to have a list and you keep going after that list. If you get rejected, well, that's a stamp that of my uh, experience. But that focus does not exist in the mind of a newbie fundraiser. It takes some experience to get there. That rejection is us. You know, rejection is me. <laughs> it gives me strength. It takes some time to get there. And you're already, see, the thing is that there are different skills that people develop for different uses, different purposes. And I think every entrepreneur faces rejection all the time. If this is something that they can leverage tools to increase their efficiency, they must. They must do so. For me, the, the entrepreneur that says, I will do it myself just because because I'm you know I'm going to show the world one well, more power to you. Just don't waste so much time doing it. The entrepreneur I would not invest in them. You know why? The entrepreneur that says, "Look, this is taking me unnecessary time. I'm going to use the tools that help me be more efficient." I think that's very wise. It's not about showing who you are. It's really about getting the job done. That's what entrepreneurship is about. You make a very strong case. Are there other pet peeves you have about uh, the venture capital world? Here's the thing. If there were a triangle, I'm on all sides of it. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an investment bank, I'm a venture capitalist. <laughs> so I've seen the highs and the lows of all three. I don't have pet peeves. I think everyone has their place. It's an ecosystem. And the three working together make for a better future. That's what I say. It's rare to see all three things, an entrepreneur, banker, and investor all together in one organization. It's a, it's a rare indeed. I want to switch to the last part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there an organization that you're passionate about and why? 
Yeah. I'm passionate about a lot of things in life, as I think should be evident by now. But the problem is that I have simply no time to dedicate. But if you ask me what I'm passionate about, I'm passionate about climate change. It matters to me. I'm passionate about freedom in countries around the world. It matters to me. I'm passionate about female entrepreneurs. It matters to me because I have gone through it. I have gone through rejection and it is extremely subtle and there's nothing that you can place your finger on, but it happens. So I'm passionate about women empowerment. Those are some things I'm passionate about. But if you ask me, am, am I involved whole soul in any any organization volunteering my time and so on? I'm not right now. And the reason for that is I don't like to do things half-baked. If I take it on, I will make it whatever best I can do. I know that between being a mom, being an entrepreneur, I, I, don't, I simply don't have the time. I have two children. <laughs> so it becomes really hard. A long time back, as I mentioned to you, you know, I was on the board of my son's school. He was very little then. You know, I had only one child. I hadn't started down this path. But as we've grown older, you know, the children have grown older. I think life has become a lot more consuming. But I will get back to it because these things matter to me. This is fantastic. Thank you very much for spending the time with me and sharing your thoughts and insights. Very unique indeed. Thank you so much, Gopi, for having me. It's a great pleasure. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.